This podcast is brought to you by Premiere, the UK's leading Christian media organisation. As we approach the end of our financial year, we want to remind you that podcasts like this are only possible due to the generosity of supporters like you. You could help reach millions of people throughout the year through shows just like this. Make your best gift today at premierchristianradio.plus. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio Well hello and welcome along to The Profile with me Justin Briley It's that time of the week here on Premier Christian Radio when we meet a Christian with a really interesting life story I'm going to be introducing you to Pete Portal in just a moment, author of a new book called No Neutral Ground. But if you'd like more episodes of The Profile, don't forget we're available as a podcast wherever you find podcasts from. Uh, And you can also find more interesting interviews with all kinds of Christians in all walks of life from Premier Christianity magazine. If you want to get a free sample copy of the latest edition of the magazine, you can get one at premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. I'm Justin Briley, and today my guest on the program is Pete Portal. Welcome along to the program, Pete. Thank you very much. It's great to have you on. Um, I've known about your story for a little while, actually, because when I was the editor of Premier Christianity magazine, we featured you and Sarah in the magazine talking about this extraordinary story, which you've now kind of given us the chance to to have a bit more depth into with this new book of your journey. Um, Moving to South Africa, establishing this extraordinary ministry to... Um, drug addicts, gang members, um, and just about the incredible highs and lows that that has involved. Um, We'll talk about No Neutral Ground, Finding Jesus in a Cape Town Ghetto is the subtitle of this new book of yours. Um, But I want to talk about how things started off for you, first of all, Um, because you grew up in a pretty kind of normal British environment, born in London, sort of white middle class kind of family. and no Christian kind of context whatsoever for what you were doing, uh, for the kind of life you kind of had in your early days. I Yeah, I, I, I grew up in sort of uh, southeast London, middle class family. Um, we attended church, but it meant nothing to me. Mm. Um, I was a chorister for five years, um, but it wasn't the Anglican spirituality that did anything for me particularly. Mm. I loved the music, but... Mm. No, faith-wise, um, uh, we were church attenders, I would say, or I was, uh, more than anything, yeah. more than that. Yeah. It, it wasn't something that you had sort of come alive for yourself, um, and we'll come to how it did do that. It was interesting to read, though, in, in the book that uh, you attended this um, this Westminster Abbey Choir School, um, and that involved, you know, all of the great state occasions and everything even you, I think you were in the the boys choir that sang at Princess Diana's funeral yeah um so but even in that situation where you effectively were going to church eight times a week I think none of it really sunk in in terms of any of the the actual truths of Christianity it kind of went over your head to some to some level yeah totally I I we, we were in we were engaged in a performance mm. from from the age of eight to 13 it was drilled into you how to uh, pronounce various words and um, the enunciation of the Latin or the Nicene Creed or whatever it might be. And quite honestly, that's not particularly conducive to sort of 
heartfelt faith or it mm. wasn't for me as a mm. preteen which yeah. uh yeah so so faith wise um no it wasn't it wasn't a faith experience of any kind and even though there was a confirmation process again it wasn't something that really actually meant much to you in terms of a, any kind of living faith no just something point. that we did yeah. yeah so what was it that that brought you to a living faith in the end because there's quite an in- interesting story behind this yeah yeah <clears throat> well it was a complete accident i um i was at a public school in kent and on the weekends we had managed to friends of friends of mine and i at the age of 15 had managed to get our hands on some fake ID cards and put the wrong date of birth in and um, use these to get in to all the bars and clubs in. Um, Were you a bit of a naughty boy? Uh, in a very cosseted middle class, <laughs> privileged way, I suppose. Um, but no, not really. I don't think I can, <laughs> don't really, I can say that. Um, but just, just doing stuff teenagers did, you yeah, know, yeah. and messing around and rebelling in whatever safe ways we could find to do. And um, ended up at the end of a night in a takeaway um on seven oaks high street and ended up getting into a fight with the manager of one of the pubs there and um, you foolishly let slip that you'd got in with these yeah yeah yeah. we've been boasting and i (laughs) ended up stupidly showed him this uh this fake id that we had made and he was like well actually i'm the manager of uh the pub you were last in you're barred and i'm going to report you and so we ended up getting in a fight um and there was a guy in the corner of the takeaway who split up the fight Mm-hmm. Um, and um, sort of sent me on my way and I didn't think anything of it really mm-hmm. uh, until the next week uh, for whatever reason my mum had signed me up for a uh, sort of church youth camp Okay. Uh, my older sister had come to faith through this church and I think my mum had recognised that this was a good thing and I probably needed a bit of I don't know whatever it was my older sister had mm-hmm. got mm-hmm. and um, I turned up turned off my mobile phone because I, I I knew nothing about really what this yeah. was going to involve yeah. apart yeah. from it wasn't the cool thing to do yeah. okay. go on church <laughs> camp and um, turned off my phone so no one could get in touch with me during the week and um, as I uh, climbed toward the bus the guy ticking the names off uh, was the guy in the takeaway the week before who had split up the fight right. and again I had no no sort of grid to put it on uh, faith wise but something in my spirit I think realized that you know god had got my attention this was significant in some way it was significant and and that week was significant because i think it was that week where you finally understood what christianity is about right and um i i had heard the gospel of mark taught clearly and coherently uh and without sort of denominational this and that so i may have got it Mm. um previously um, just a clear gospel message, uh, but also the witness of the uh, the young people who were there, who were my mm-hmm. age from similar backgrounds, but actually uh, weren't essentially hiding their own insecurity mm-hmm. as I was mm-hmm. with various um, behaviors that, right. yeah. you know, and yeah. so I was, I was fascinated. I thought, well, I've heard this message of this guy, Jesus, who that everyone's saying is true. And, but yet when I look at their lives, actually, yeah, mm-hmm. like this, mm-hmm. this makes sense. Um, yeah. I, I want what they've got. Yeah. I mean, this, this would lead you on a journey uh, of really starting your Christian faith at that point um, through obviously secondary school, where I think a lot of people, you know, were pretty skeptical and, and made fun of it, but did eventually take you to studying theology um, uh, at university. Yeah. And, and I guess um, into a kind of Christian life in your early 20s, where you were kind of, you know, you believed it all, you went to church. Um, but you were sort of not 
well, tell us what how things happened, how the direction started to move in terms of thinking about South Africa and, and all of that as well. Yeah, well, I, so I was um, studying religious studies at Edinburgh. Um, I kind of panicked. I didn't know what to study uh, at university and figured that that would be a good thing to do. That And that wasn't theology so much as comparative religions, phenomenology mm. and um, ancient Hebrew and things like that. It just seemed a bit more uh, interesting to me. And... Um, yeah, it was it was at Edinburgh that I, I uh, made friends with a, a guy called Andy who invited me on a short term mission trip to South Africa. And um, that, yeah, I ended up going to South Africa based on his invite. There, there's another interesting story about <laughs> you not not being particularly interested to begin with in this idea of a short term mission trip to South Africa. Not at Africa. all. No, I, I, I was um, working at the CBBC at the time, um, you know, assembling giant pogo sticks for the live studio show <laughs> and working out how how best to gunge people's parents. And that was really what I wanted to spend my life yeah. doing, I thought. Mm. And so when he said, come to South Africa, and I said, no, and he tried to sweeten the deal by saying, we're going to go into prisons and uh, work with gang members. I thought, well, you're not, you know, this, this is not at all <laughs> sound what very, I want to be doing. Yeah. Um, and God conspired to get me there. Um, and Tell us the story, because it is, it is a fun story well, of, well, of how God sort of, semi-twisted your arm <laughs> right right well as i say i had no interest in south africa i was interested in in working in in tv and um but when he said will you come and i said no he played what you know i i, I now call the christian trump card he said well will you at least pray about it and so <laughs> and I you thought, can't say no no i can't can say you? no yeah, that, and 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 i did right. and you know no epiphany apart from a week later i got a letter in the post from the NHS saying that um, here's the date for your, your, your shoulder operation that I've been waiting months for. Um, and the proposed date was slap bang in the middle of the proposed trip to South Africa. So great, I, great excuse. God's confirmed I can't do the trip. Absolutely. Yeah. And he used the NHS to show that, you know, and, and then Andy said, well, why don't you phone them? And I thought, for goodness sake, you know, but I ended up phoning the, the shoulder consultant's secretary and um, clock that she had a, uh, an unfamiliar accent. And I said, um, uh, I'm just phoning to see if it's possible to change the operation date. And she said, well, it's not going to be easy, but why? Uh, and I said, well, I want to go on a short-term mission trip. And she goes, oh, where to? And I said, South Africa. She said, I'm from South Africa. <laughs> what, what sort of trip was it? Um, I said, oh, it's a Christian mission trip. She says, oh, I'm a Christian. Where, where in South Africa? And I said, um, town outside Cape Town called Pal. And she goes, I'm from Pal. <laughs> and so, and then she said, I think God might want you to go on this trip, which is not something you necessarily hear from uh, uh, consultant secretaries. So I, I figured again, a bit like the previous story, God had just got my attention. Yeah, yeah. And again, my spirit recognized that there was something in this. And I kind of... Um, what's the word, um, begrudgingly went along, mm. recognizing that probably it would be yeah. uh, disobedient not mm. to. Um, and then, yeah, that, that changed everything. Yeah. And you experienced on that trip as naive and, you know, innocent in a sense as you were, you were kind of thrown in at the deep end, but you experienced w what it looks like or feels like t to live in a spiritual war zone at some level. Because I think yeah. it was really during that time that you kind of got to grips with praying. Right. Because suddenly there was really stuff to pray about. Yeah, exactly. There, there were nine of us in this student group between the ages of 18 and 22 or something. I mean, so young. And um, and there are three rooms in this house that we were mm. staying in, in a, in a community um, on the Cape Flats, um, and which we'll talk about in a bit, I'm sure. And... 
So, some bright spark said, why don't we put all the guys in one room, all the girls in another room, and the third bedroom will have as a 24-hour prayer room. And I thought, what a questionable use of a third room. <laughs> you know, like, we're going to be exhausted, surely. be nice to have some extra space. Yeah, there, you know. For bedrooms, um, yeah. But but day by day, we went out to a prison, Drakenstein Prison, that used mm. to be called Victor Vestere, which was where Mandela was released mm. from um, after his time in Polesmoor. And we heard the stories of the prison gangsters and we worked in a, an informal settlement and we returned back to the Cape Flats every day and heard gunshots and um, saw the teenagers on heroin and crystal meth. And uh, it was a couple of days in as we were sitting in the prayer room late at night kind of weeping for this mm. nation that we realized what a, great, what a great use of space this was. Yes, yeah. Um, and, and really that was six weeks. Yeah. Six weeks of God depositing his heart mm. for uh, uh, a city and a nation um, uh, that I then couldn't shut up about after yeah. I returned to London. And, and in a sense, I think that went quite deep down into you even as you went back to kind of normal sort of middle-class evangelical christian right. life you, you 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 write in the book how um you were um ticking all the required boxes of respectable middle class guy in his early 20s but there was this kind of gnawing sense there's got to be more than this and you yeah. were constantly being drawn back to what happened in south africa and, and is that where god's calling me right i didn't know what constituted a calling particularly mm. apart from i was angry about what i'd seen and there seemed to be a need yeah. and i could use whatever skills i may or may not have uh, and kind of bring them all together. And, mm. you know, that, that seemed to work for me. Um, and I had nothing keeping me in London at that point. Uh, no job, no mortgage, no mm. partner or anything. So I just figured if ever I'm going to do it, now's the time. And there was no reason for anyone in London to be equally worked up mm. as I was because mm. I had been exposed to something. And I think when God exposes us to things, that comes with a responsibility yeah. to respond. And And I think... We'll talk about the way your theology and thinking has has all developed in 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 the decade or more that you've been out there, um, because I think that there's some really interesting stuff that we'll cover about the fact that you now recognise some of what you were getting into could have looked rather patronising, like the white saviour kind of going yeah. to save people in another country sort of thing. But at, at that point, you were sort of naive but very enthusiastic and willing to to go wherever god called you and i think also you're i get the sense in the book that you were starting to experience something new about the way god moves as well because i think you'd been sort of converted into a fairly sort of conservative evangelical kind mm. of tradition but you actually started to witness some quite out there miraculous stuff going on i think you went on a a trip to India uh, yes, as a yeah, yeah. supposed cameraman who <laughs> yeah. sort of managed to wangle a, um, a place of videoing this sort of um, healing sort yeah. of mission. And you, but what you saw kind of blew your mind a bit, didn't it? Yeah, that was an interesting one. So you know, I, I went to South Africa long term at the beginning of 2009, but at the end of 2008, I just had another shoulder operation. My shoulders kept dislocating. And um and saw a friend put on Facebook, um, you know, we're looking for a cameraman to film a mission trip. Anyone interested? And I thought, well, I've done some pretty rudimentary stuff at CBBC. <laughs> you know, I could... Uh, that qualifies me. Sure. Yeah, I could put myself <laughs> forward. Um, and and they were up for it. And um, I used my final paycheck to buy a ticket to India mm. and borrowed a camera and, you know, sort of looked through the instruction manual on the plane and kind of worked out how to do it. And for a couple of weeks, saw the most, well, quite honestly, normal manifestations of Christianity. But for me at the time, seemed 
completely wacky. Um, demonic deliverances and uh, physical healings and everything you, you else. You described one that really caught my attention, which was a mum with a baby. Yes, yeah. Um, and the baby born blind uh, without eyes, essentially. Well, it, it, the baby wasn't even born blind. The baby was born with no eyes in its eye sockets. Right, so literally no eyeballs. No eyeballs. Yeah. And she brought him to us, this little boy, I think, and we had our um, interpreter standing next to us. And the, the baby just looked like it was asleep. Mm. And we thought, oh, great, you know, maybe she wants us to bless the baby or I don't know. There, was, uh, there, is, there are difficulties in short-term mission, yeah. which we'll get yeah, to. But sure. um, the, the, the interpreter just said, no eyes. <laughs> okay. You know, no <laughs> eyes. Right. Oh, what do you want me to do about it? And I just feel myself sweating. I thought, oh, for goodness sake, this can't be right. You know, and I, I was you know with the camera and stuff um and there was a bunch of others um around but i actually put the camera down and got involved and um we laid hands on the baby didn't know what to do all we knew was pray jesus heals sickness nothing we can do mm. which are probably the best criteria for anything <laughs> happening anyway and prayed and prayed and prayed nothing 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 and um she had, the, the mother had kind of um, prized the eyelids open. And before us, eyeballs began to grow. A creative miracle happening as we prayed, little black uh, circles that then grew and grew and grew uh, until the baby had eyes. I have never seen anything like it before or since. No. Uh, except God heals and it's no more supernatural for him to do that than to take away your headache. Wow. It extraordinary but in a sense laid the ground perhaps for thinking okay god can do amazing things right and obviously this was in the context of you starting to to dream this dream with your friend andy of going to south africa and starting something new as naive and unprepared for it as you both were right nonetheless that you knew you were being you felt you were being called and yeah. to, the place you felt you were being called to which many people may not be familiar with this name but was manenberg yeah um which as you've described in the book is one of the most notorious ghettos of cape town um so why manenberg well we moved over to south africa we were with a, a mission organization that was great but we had no particular connection to apart from we thought we should join something official mm. and that's what people told us so we thought great okay we'll do that you know we were so clueless um and um, it was only a few months in that we were actually um, introduced to an organization in Cape Town called The Warehouse um, that really uh, seeks to serve the church, local church, in its response to poverty and injustice and division in, in Cape Town. And as we got to know people there, we met uh, a guy called Jonathan, uh, who's from Manenberg, and he was talking to us about long-term discipleship of gangsters and drug addicts rather than the sort of smash and grab Christianity of yeah. going into villages like we had done previously um, and sort of getting people to raise their hands and then leaving again. Yeah. Um, and that just resonated mm. with, with us. And mm. we thought, show us this place. Yeah. Uh, and hopped in the car with him, drove down the road and ended up uh, driving around Manenberg. And um, that it was a complete accident. It, it mm. wasn't like, this is where we want to go. We'd never heard of it, really. Mm. Um, it mm. was just... This is where God has given us a relationship. This is someone doing amazing stuff. We we want to join yeah. what's going on. But Manenberg 
is kind of one of those places that's spoken of in South Africa with a why would anyone want to go there kind of a place? Why, why yeah. is that? Why has it got that reputation? Well, it's funny because it's, it's the irony of apartheid spatial planning is such that Manenberg is one junction away from the airport. So you have all, you know, uh, the townships around the airport and um, the closest to the airport are those who are least likely to ever get on, on an aeroplane. Um, but if you go to Cape Town and you rent a car from the airport and they ask for the address and you say Manenberg, so many of our friends who've come to visit have have described the <laughs> the look uh, of shock and bewilderment yeah are you sure you don't mean mean musenberg <laughs> or are you sure you don't mean you know um yeah manenberg has a rough reputation um for sure and it's it's often described as an apartheid dumping ground um mm. because it shouldn't exist in the first place manenberg exists because the apartheid regime forcibly removed hundreds of thousands of people of color from the foot of Table Mountain in the southern suburbs um, and built dormitory style housing for them mm. 20, 30 kilometers outside of town. and Out of sight, out of mind. Exactly. And railways and highways were used to kind of, um, uh, what I kind of see as a sort of botched face job of, uh, of right. a city with these sort of lines of pain and scars everywhere that keeps uh, Cape Coloured, which is a local term for those of mixed race, away from Corsa, right. uh, black uh, So you, you could literally be on people. the wrong side of the tracks in that kind of scenario. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and actually nothing has changed really, particularly yeah. in Cape Town. But anyway, so the, the current scene in Manenberg is one of um, pandemic uh, gangs and drug abuse, um, which really someone explained to me um, in relation to another uh, conflict, uh, what collective trauma looks like. And if mm. your home was bulldozed 50 years ago by the regime and you grew up now in, in Manenberg, of course your collective trauma response will be to defend your turf. Mm. It's really quite an obvious thing. Mm. Mm. And so then gangs spring up. Yeah. And, um, and, and that is them, the way that comes with them. that a lot of these young men and boys and women get their meaning and their, their community is, is in a gang and it's in looking for that purpose and I suppose solidarity yeah. within structures that are often obviously very destructive, yeah. but it's the only reality that is on offer right. very often, presumably. And you say in the book that, and this is kind of where the, the title of the book comes from, that every, every square inch of Manenberg is, is basically owned by a gang of some kind or another. Mm. There's no neutral ground in that sense. Right. But yeah. what do you mean by no neutral ground? Well, what I mean by no neutral ground is when we, when we say yes to following Jesus, we can no longer live in a way that just palely reflects the way we've been living beforehand. Mm. Someone once said, I don't know who, but if you're uh, live in such a way that if God exists, your life wouldn't make sense. And I was in, in London, I was tired of living in a way that my life made complete sense. Actually, it was reasonable. It mm. was, you know, uh, fairly passive. And as I say, it was a pale reflection of everyone else's around me. And for me, when we come to know Jesus, we have a, cho a, a, a choice, an invitation to die to self and um, invade systemic injustice with the kingdom of Jesus, which looks like love and looks like embrace and looks like uh, belonging. Mm. You, you start the preface of the book with that quote from C.S. Lewis, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Yeah. And Jesus says similar words, obviously, in, in Matthew, you quote from the message here, that this is war, 
and there is no neutral ground. If you're not on my side, you're the enemy. If you're not helping, you're making things worse. And I get that sense in the rest of the book almost. You're talking about like a spiritual war zone that yeah. you're entering, as well as a physical war zone very yeah. often. Um, so, so what was that like in those early days? I mean, again, full of naive optimism. And um, tell us about what went right and what went badly wrong. Well, what, what went right is probably easier to tell because there's <laughs> less of that. Um, <laughs> but we, we prayer walked. Yeah. Uh, Andy and I prayer walked with Jono for six hours a week for the best part of a year. And he walked with us uh, along gang territories and through various conflict zones because uh, Manenberg's really a, a community on the brink of perpetual civil war with itself the whole time. Mm. And we prayed and we met people along the way who would ask us, what are you doing? And uh, uh, Jono would explain and we would begin to pick up some Afrikaans as we did it. And um, in walking, we began to meet young men. And um, in, in the, at the end of the first year, four of them had made commitments to follow Jesus and um, uh, really powerfully received the Holy Spirit. A couple of them particularly sort of uh, 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 Dwayne came off heroin uh, eventually painlessly through baptism of the holy spirit and another guy called kevin got uh filled with the holy spirit in in his uh mother's shack as he was repenting of everything that had gone before and so we saw these amazing little mm. uh snippets of or, or little sort of uh, uh glimpses of the kingdom's light breaking through um and that was because we were soaked in prayer we, mm. we could do nothing else mm. but as uh, as time went on we began to see each one of those young men fall away right um, and we began to realize that friendship and prayer, uh, as basic and as necessary as they are, are not the full picture. We mm. needed to establish some other things to bring a sustainability and a uh, uh, culture conducive to healing and recovery. Yeah. We'll talk about that in the next section of today's show. Um, because you've got some extraordinary stories, but they are stories that are both full of joy and hope, but also great disappointment and frustration. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that is the reality of the world we face. Um, and, uh, and and we'll obviously talk about Sarah, who's your wife now, and, and obviously all the difference that that made in, as you joined your, your lives together in this endeavor. So um, my guest on the show today is Pete Portal. This is Justin Briley uh, presenting the profile today. And you're going to continue to hear some extraordinary stories of... Um, his life and Sarah's life in uh, Cape Town in one of the most co- notorious ghettos, uh, Manenberg. And it's all been put down uh, in his new book, No Neutral Ground, Finding Jesus in a Cape Town Ghetto. I've been reading it. It's, it is an amazing, it's a stunning book. Do go and get it. Um, and we'll be continuing this conversation in a short moment's time. Premier Christianity magazine in this month's issue. Old Testament stories containing the torture, rape or murder of women come under the spotlight. In light of the Me Too movement, we ask, as Christians, how should we read these passages today? Plus, find out what true racial diversity could look like in our churches and discover the article your pastor wishes you'd read but is too embarrassed to ask. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio.
Welcome back to the second part of today's show. I'm Justin Briley with you for The Profile. And if you want to find uh, more interesting interviews with Christians from all walks of life, do pick up a copy of the latest edition of Premier Christianity magazine. Uh, You can actually get a free sample copy by going online to the website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. And here on The Profile, both as a podcast and on Premier Christian Radio, uh, it's a great joy to sit down with interesting people. And um, one of the most interesting that I've come across recently is my guest Pete Portal on the show today. He's the author of No Neutral Ground, Finding Jesus in a Cape Town Ghetto. It's really the story of how he and his wife Sarah um, have responded to the call of God to go to one of South Africa's most notorious ghettos, Manenberg. Um, and really a challenge to Christians everywhere to risk it all for the sake of the forgotten and uh, the most vulnerable. And Pete, it's impossible not to read a book like this and be very challenged by your story. Um, Though, I mean, do you do you get a sense of frustration when you come back to the UK and see effectively a very sort of comfortable middle class Christianity? which is quite obsessed with sometimes navel-gazing issues probably compared to the kinds of things you're meeting on a daily basis in South Africa. How do you respond to that? How do you deal with that, that kind of sense of, come on, guys, <laughs> get real <laughs> kind of thing? Yeah. Um, the short answer is yes. There's a big but, mm. uh, and that is that condemnation or judgment is, it shuts down straight away. Mm. But... Uh, joy and fascination is generative and infectious. Mm. And so if if we can tell a story, and, and, and there's always a temptation to tell better stories in the lives we're living, right? <laughs> but if we can tell a story with integrity and with joy that acknowledges the, the, the desperate lows uh, as well, then I think actually that is there's something about our human existence that longs for that. That's mm. fullness of life, and so that's what we come and um, really do. We 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 preach the gospel and we tell of the goodness of God uh, in a place where, like Nazareth, people say, "Manabo, can any, can anything good come out of Manabo?" Yeah, yeah. And we say, "Absolutely, like Nazareth, absolutely." Before we hear the story of, of meeting Sarah and, and your, your joint ministry together, tell us a little bit about the journey you've been on theologically. Not only did you have that journey kind of to, to realising the power of God um, and so on, but also I think a, a kind of academic journey to realising the bigger picture of, I suppose, colonial influence, um, privilege and um, the way that systemic structures, if you like, have are part of the big picture of what's happened in South Africa. Yeah. And obviously what the implications are for you as a sort of white Western male coming over to sort of do stuff and, and, and how that's going to be received and, and, and what that looks like and so on. What, 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 what has been the journey you've been on when it comes to, to looking at that, that bigger picture? In a nutshell, the journey is in my own mind, seeing going from seeing Jesus as, merely a personal savior Mm. to Jesus as a liberator from political and social oppression. Mm. It's not that he's one or the other, he's both. But I was only ever taught this moralistic gospel that you are bad, Mm. he's perfect, come to him and you will be made perfect. Absolutely, imputed righteousness, great. Mm. But then what's the extension of that for how how then we are to live? Mm. 
and how we then are to live is in fulfilling the Great Commission, um, seeking to invade systemic injustice for the gospel. Um, and that doesn't mean invading communities or invading culture in a colonial spirit. It means looking at whatever prevailing injustices uh, grab us and God speaks to us through and seeking to live our lives as a generative contradiction to whatever the prevailing status quo it might be. And so that, that looks different in London as it does mm. in Manenberg. But mm. the invitation to us is always the same, is to follow Jesus out of our comfort zones and live our life um, in a way that asks questions of whatever that injustice is. I once heard someone say, we're praying for justice as a church. We pray all the time for justice. Mm. Mm. And yet if we're complicit in maintaining systems of injustice, he said, we shouldn't be praying for justice. Yeah. We should be praying for mercy. Mm. And so we're all hypocrites to some extent, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, but it was a year studying um, political theology at King's in London, uh, the year after Sarah and I got married, that really awakened me mm. to um, liberation theology, to um, the writings of many great theologians that I hadn't considered before, and, and to the whole room of theology, uh, that black theology, and James Cone, and uh, all of this sort of stuff. And, and all of that, in a sense, quite politically charged um you know quite in, in a sense liberation theology is is very much about looking at the big social issues and structures and so on uh, and taking it away from that slightly yeah moralistic personal get saved by jesus kind of view yeah how how did you kind of what difference did that make practically to what you then how you how you manifested and and carried out your ministry on the ground in cape town what did you know were there things you you were more conscious of what you were doing and how you were presenting yourself and the kind of christianity you were inviting people to join join in in that sense oh for sure um i shut up basically right and i began to listen and began to find good news from the poor as mm. well as knowing that i was to pro proclaim good news to the poor yeah and so it becomes this reciprocal mutual um liberation right and that is the story that, that Sarah and I often tell of living with young men who are addicted and angry and traumatized and uh, uh, violent is that there's so much beauty and so much of the gospel message we can find in living together with such people mm -hmm. where they then become my teachers. Yeah. And, 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 and that's the way it should be. And it's no, it shouldn't really be a surprise that that is the thing, but it often is. I think you got to a point reasonably early on in your experience there where, where you'd suffered some disappointments and, and some issues and you kind of kind of in slight desperation said to God, I don't think I can hack this anymore. You're going to have to give me a wife or I'm going to kind of quit. Yeah, that what, was remarkable and, and utterly melodramatic, actually, because I was <laughs> I was 24 at the time, had 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 been living five months with Dwayne in Manenberg. Five months. I mean, mm. a complete emotional. And this spiritual. was Dwayne who at the, that point had apparently come off the... The, the he, he had he had been delivered off heroin but had relapsed right yeah and um and the wheels were really coming off and yeah. it had hit crunch time and um the only the only thing that hadn't gone missing was my laptop <laughs> and i said to him recently i said yeah but you never got my laptop did you because because Dwayne's now almost eight years clean right and is married and a father yeah. and um he's just doing great and you know as an example of the transforming power right. of jesus but i said to him recently um yeah but you never got my laptop did you <laughs> 
And I said, it's, it's because I moved it from drawer to drawer in different places <laughs> around the house. And he just looked at me and he chuckled. He said, are you joking? I knew exactly where it was. <laughs> I just knew that the moment I stole your laptop, the game was up. <laughs> he knew that that was the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was the cross. line. Wow. And thank God he didn't because <laughs> that was... And actually that season was the beginning of writing my book because right. I would just journal and journal and journal. Yeah. And, and you include segments from that in, in the book. Indeed, which yeah. Which is really helpful. And, and part of that was, um, and I remember the date and the time really clearly. It was the 17th of September, 2010, at about 4.30 in the afternoon. And I wrote, as you say, um, a prayer, really, or a moan, um, <laughs> which are often similar, aren't they? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and I moaned to God and I said, um, I'm done with this. I'm completely exhausted, spiritually, mm. emotionally depressed. Had become a single parent to a drug addict living alone in a township. Um, and I said in, in my diary, Lord, I, but I know that you've called me here and therefore I will give the, the rest of my life. I'll happily live here for the rest of my life if that's what you want for me. But the one thing I ask is that you would give me a wife to, um, to do this together with. And I was at 4.30, packed up my laptop, packed a bag and went to a friend's house in town because uh, we were going to another friend's uh, birthday party. And that evening, about three hours later, after praying that prayer, Sarah and I met. Wow. And the rest is history, as they say. Right. He Sarah, but I should say, is, is here with us in the studio. Unfortunately, she's not on mic. But do you want to just say hello for the audience, Sarah? <laughs> so anyway, Sarah is there. Um, but in a way, I'm sure that that was doing, being able to do this with someone by your side, and, and that counts for both of you, I'm sure made made a big difference from that point forward to, to kind of this, this is okay. I feel like I, I can go forward in this now. Yeah, oh, for sure. I mean, that was that was one of the clearest and quickest answer to prayers <laughs> I'd I'd ever seen. Um, you know, we we sat that evening chatting all night around. Mm. Um, oh, I don't know. Um, the coltan crisis in the Congo and xenophobia and uh, faith and our frustration with suburban church mm. and child soldiers and uh, the kingdom and. It, it, yeah, we, we just hit it off straight away and it was incredibly encouraging. Sarah was on her way to the Congo to work with child soldiers. Right. And I said to her, well, come 20 minutes down the road and meet Cape Town's child soldiers. So yeah. actually our first date yeah. was in Manenberg accidentally, uh, trying to help Dwayne stay clean. Yeah, and, and there are many, many other stories you tell in the book of, of the way that you and Sarah have, have worked together. And, and But I mean, that's a kind of crazy life you know, for anyone, um, let alone starting a married life together to, to kind of be involved in. How did you kind of cope with both the change in, you know, you, you being together and and being surrounded, you know, by this kind of almost constant semi chaos of, of the lives that you were involved in and, and trying to help and everything else? Because I can imagine that puts pressures on a relationship, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the first six months that we were married, we were living, we weren't living in Manenberg together. Mm -hmm. I'd moved out by then. And then for the next year, we moved to London to study. Um, and so it was only really, well, we moved in to Manenberg on our second wedding anniversary. Um, and Sarah's mother had uh, tragically died in 2011 and left us some money. And um, uh, uh, God spoke to us about using everything we had mm. uh, to create a home and habitation for his spirit where we could welcome young men out of gangs and drugs and, and, and do family together. Um, and that was the sort of beginning of the next season. But it absolutely, it put strain on relationship. But I, as I said earlier, it, it, 
it means that there's no neutral ground even in a relationship. Mm -hmm. You have to work mm -hmm. out your stuff. If yeah. we're trying to impart peace and healing and unity uh, uh, to angry young men, uh, we cannot give it that if we're not ourselves living yeah, it. Absolutely. Um, tell us a little bit about some of these young guys, especially that you were seeing and, and what you were trying to set up with this house that you'd managed to get hold of. Is it Crew 62 that Crew would 62, become known yeah. as? Um, and eventually that came under the, the a kind of uh, the, the oversight in the sense of a church that you became part of as well. Um, but but tell us about some of these. I've got a number of names here, but you can choose who you, whose story you want to tell. Um, I've got uh, Moinir, uh, Shiham, and Marwan mm, as yeah. well. Um, they've all got unique stories um, that are both joyful and desperately tragic as well. Yeah, well, it's an interesting one. I mean, Manenberg is about 40% Muslim. Mm. Um, so officially 60% Christian, 40% Muslim. Now, official statistics rarely mean anything. But all that to say, it's a worshipping community. And back in the day, I was staying with Dwayne, and um, he, he was going off to help on a, a church camp, which retrospectively he wasn't ready for. Mm. But I asked him if he could find a suitable friend of his who would maybe come live with me whilst he was away. And we would just carry on the same daily rhythms of reading scripture together and, you know, mm. uh, all the rest of it. And his friend Munir said he would come and um, live with me, which was very kind of him. And Munir is a Muslim. And I thought, well, you know, we'll read the scriptures. And we uh, were reading the scriptures and going through the gospel. And, uh, I, and I asked him one day, I said, so... You know, we, we'd, we'd read all about Jesus. And I said, so, so what do you make of this Jesus? Do you, you know, is this, is, this, is this a man you would like to follow? And he said, well, of course I'd like to, but I can't for two reasons. I said, oh, why not? And he said, one is that I'm a Muslim, and that's a lifelong commitment. And the other is I'm a prison gangster. So in prison, there are the 26s, 27s, and 28 gangs. And when you make a commitment to join one of them, that is a lifelong, right. literally, blood covenant. Yeah. So... They were perfectly reasonable objections, uh, and to his credit, he wasn't going to try and sort of add Christiani <laughs> Christianity onto his other lifelong commitments. Yeah. And he said, so it's impossible. And I said, well, why don't we pray that Jesus would reveal himself to you today and show you that those two objections, whilst reasonable, actually need not preclude you from following him? So, All right, fine. Um, he couldn't really say no, so we prayed. <laughs> But that afternoon he came back and he, um, I said, so how's your day? And he said, I had a bizarre encounter. He didn't call it an encounter, what do you call mm -hmm. it? I met these guys at, um, on Manenberg Avenue. I said, oh, who is that? He said, well, these four or five guys, I forget how many now. I forget their names, but it was like Ikshan, Mansur, Muhammad, and Suleiman. And, and, and I said, okay. Well, and he said, and they had prison gang tattoos all over them. Uh, uh, but they, they, had, they, they were Bukir, which is Afrikaans for uh, saved, born again. And they were carrying their big Bibles. And he said, I couldn't work out how these prison gangsters who had all, all who had Muslim names were, were Bakir, were, were following Jesus. And they came up to me and said um, that God spoke to them about me and that he's opened a door in front of me and um, that Jesus is calling me and that I must just walk through it. And then they prayed for me. And I was absolutely dumbfounded. I thought, that's, uh, that's, uh, Munir, that's exactly prayer. You just prayed. <laughs> right. But here's the thing. He didn't see it. Mm. I said, so, you know, like, what are you going to do about it? And he was like, oh, I don't know. And, and he was on heroin at the time. Mm. He's still on heroin. I saw his wife last week. He's still on heroin. And um, at some point, I believe his story is not over. You know, we cannot mm. deny the miraculous yeah. encounter that he had. Mm. 
and God's calling him. Yeah. But he at, at, at the moment, you, he isn't following Jesus. But even the widest door doesn't mean someone's going to walk through it or what seems to us to be you know, right. a, a golden opportunity. Totally. Um, I mean, just though that description of that scenario, I think will leave a lot of people scratching their heads going, so these these are Muslims, but who are gang members and drug addicts. Like, isn't that like a mutual contradiction? Like, but this is the kind of thing that people live with all kinds of identities, I suppose, that they don't necessarily see in their context as somehow completely absurd, as, as we might think. Yeah, and as I say, uh, in Manenberg, everyone's officially something. Right. Um, but it's uh, fairly nominal. Right, yeah, yeah. and... and 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 a lot of these young guys, as you say, the, the stories you tell are often of, of guys from a Muslim background, but who are in the, the gangs and drug addicts and so on. Um, uh, you, you tell, yeah, they're, they're, there's um, one of them, Reswell, I think, in the, yeah. in the book um, you talk about. And just the journey he's been on. Do you want to explain his story and, and the, the, the birth of the child, which is yeah. quite, quite incredible as well? Well, it, I mean, this is the thing. It's, again, like the message of the entire book, his is a life of spectacularly high highs and disastrously low lows which he's still in currently but but he came to crew 62 um i had met he was the first guy i met in manenberg and he came to crew 62 uh having he'd been offered a scholarship to one of the best schools in cape town but heroin had got him mm. six months earlier and he'd, he'd he'd started taking heroin came to us and um had a girlfriend at the time and uh, a pregnant girlfriend and during his time in crew 62 the baby was uh was was due and so we drove his girlfriend to the hospital and helped him be there he didn't want to be present for the birth but we uh said it was actually yeah. vital that he was yeah. he was and halfway through the birthing uh process he he messaged me saying pete pete please pray the baby the heartbeat has stopped uh, for the last 15 minutes. The, the baby's not alive. Mm. We need mm. to pray resurrection over my my baby. And so we got Crew 62 up and everyone in our little church community and we all got praying. And about half an hour later, he wrote back just saying, praise God, uh, she's alive. Mm. And, um, and so he'd seen this incredible miracle mm. in front of him. Mm. And we'd just had a discussion in the car just before he'd gone into the hospital about how he'd been reading a book that he had that had explained to him for the first time ever what, what grace was. And he said, I, I realized the, the reason for God, the by reason Tim for Keller. God by Tim yeah, Keller. Yeah. Um, and you know, cause he's, he's an incredibly clever guy yeah. and it was surprising that he was reading this, but um, he said, I get it now. I get that. I don't need to do anything to make mm, God mm. love me, but it, it's, it's his free grace. I get it. And it changes everything. Pete. Mm. And I was like, wow, this is a huge day. Yeah, Your yeah, baby's yeah, yeah. come back to life. <laughs> You've just understood grace. And that was the Thursday on the Monday. He um, left the house and within a week had relapsed uh, by drinking alcohol and then relapsed back onto heroin. Mm. And he's currently living on the streets. Um, but again, we don't believe that's the end. We don't believe that's mm. the end of his story. Yeah. But it, it is indicative of the fact that this is like a messy story. It, right. There are no kind of necessarily always happy endings and perfect sort of tied up stories of, yeah. of how this person went on to live some victorious life people are people and mm. and that and, and i get the sense that that throughout this all you've learned to kind of live with the in the tension of the fact that it it's a broken world that you that we live in and you're kind of basically as we've said before 
fighting in a sort of supernatural battle, essentially. So what what are some of the lessons you've learned in a more general way of, of living in that kind of environment and, and, and how to kind of reconcile the reality of this, this brokenness and, and the failures and tragedies you see with, with the hope, I suppose, of, of, of believing that the kingdom really is coming? I think what, what we're learning is the redefinition of what we mean by the word success. People bang on about successful ministry and it does mm. my head in. <laughs> What do we even mean by that? If faithfulness to what God has asked us to do is the only measure of success, then we're 100% successful. Mm. Now, I will sometimes make and often make decisions that actually go against what I know God would want me to do. So in that sense, you know, but when, yeah. uh, when someone once asked Sarah, uh, Sarah and I, um, so what's your success rate with Crew 62? You know, it's a classic <laughs> question and not an unreasonable one. Sarah just uh, said, oh, 100%. And I thought, oh, <laughs> you know, uh, this is going to come back. What do you mean? And she said, each person who's come in, and there have been 40 or 50 now over the last few years, each guy who's come in looking for love has found it in the face of Jesus through us and through our family. Mm. 100% successful. Yeah. And so we redefine success. And that's fine. Okay, great. But and, and, and we've realized we, we don't do something because it's effective. We do it because it's true. And Jesus didn't look very successful when he was dying on the cross. And, and that's, right. that's, you know, success is redefined in Christianity in a pretty subversive way. Absolutely. And so we, we, we seek to live our lives in the truest way we can in response to the example in life of Jesus. Now, of course, Jesus resurrected. Mm. He was victorious ultimately, and we believe that if we stick around, we will be. Yeah. We will see more lives changed. We'll see more evangelism through fascination, and we'll see a community totally transformed, but, but it won't happen in our timing or in the way we imagine. But I guess, do you see yourself as somehow in that battle at this point between the cross and the ultimate resurrection, the ultimate new day of God, where what what are you doing? What, what you know, because some might say, it's brilliant what you're doing, Pete, but still a drop in the ocean isn't yeah, it yeah. you know uh, yeah that's a um, classic line what 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 for you is the what why why does it make sense for you to give your whole life into just reaching x many people in that little part of cape town because we have come to realize that it's less about the task we are doing and more about the people we are becoming mm. and the people we are becoming in this life of exuberant joy and tragic lows is a kingdom people and there's beauty in that and therefore even if no one was to get clean or come mm. to know jesus we know that the way we're living is the truest response we could come up with to the gospel yeah. in cape town i don't want to end before we hear also the story of I think it's pronounced Marawan. Marawan, yeah. Um, because again, that's a story of, of great hope, but also a kind of a tragedy, but one which I think has quite shaped your community and, and what you do and the reason you do it. So do you want to tell us the story of Marawan? Yeah, Marawan came to us, um, I think he was 19 years old, uh, a heroin addict, uh, born in a Muslim family, um, a gangster, and had actually emerged... Uh, later on uh, had actually held up at knife point one of our church leaders uh, <laughs> who five years prior to Marwan coming to us had prophesied over him 
as he was being mugged that he was forgiven and that he was a child of God and that uh, God had a plan for his life. Marwan came to us five years after that, cold turkeying off heroin, shivering, joint pain, fever, everything. Um, And we were playing um, worship music in the house and there was a song, No Longer Slaves, that was playing. Um, The the, the words, I'm no longer a slave to fear, I'm a child of God. And when the song ended, Marwan kind of croaked from his bed, play it again. We thought, okay, fine. He's a new guy. He can get what he wants. Uh, we'll play it again. He just said, kept saying, play it again, play it again. And we said, why? And he said, oh, when that song plays, my withdrawal pains leave. And then he came to a worship night that we hold around the corner. And um, that song was was the opening song mm. of the evening. And he, he jumped into the middle of the room. You know, bear in mind, he'd never been to church before <laughs> in his life, as far as I could yeah. work out. And just said, won't you all pray for me? So we prayed for him. And at that moment, he received the gift of tongues. Uh, and the physical withdrawals of coming off heroin instantly left him. And he got saved. Gosh. And so that then his life was then in sort of fast forward. Mm. The next 15 months he was with us, he just grew astronomically, faith-wise, and in every way you could imagine. And God gave him a vision of how he could be a change in his community as well and decided along with a a friend and colleague of ours um, to walk from Johannesburg to Cape Town, 1,500 kilometers over 60 days, 38 kilometers a day um, to raise money and profile and shine a spotlight on the failing school system in Manenberg so that young guys who were on the risk of being expelled like he was wouldn't wouldn't be and he could make a change. Mm. And on the second day of that walk, he uh, was killed uh, in a car crash, a car just drove, onto, uh, drove into him on the hard shoulder and killed him instantly. And we were devastated. He was the first guy to come through the yeah, house. Yeah, he, had, yeah. he was an example of everything mm. that we said mm. Jesus uh, would do in people's lives because we knew him to be true and um, he was cut down short. And, um, and, and it felt like that, that must have stung even more in a way than the, the guys who relapse or whatever right. because it felt like senseless and like, no, that's not the way that story is supposed yeah. to end, God. And people come up with every theology they can. Oh, my goodness. You know, well-meant, but completely yeah. misguided. Of Oh, it was obviously his time to go. Mm. Or someone even said to me, maybe it was because he was going to relapse one day and God, you know, took yeah. him away before he did. You know, people just, we yeah. make things Which up. Which we try we? to kind of right. square the circle somehow. Right. Yeah. And it was, it, was, it was a robbery. And uh, that's how we see it. But uh, along with, as you were uh, uh, talking about, Jesus's crucifixion and death and the resurrection that came, um, we demanded souls for Marwan's life. And we prayed that over and over. And his mother and his sister and his brother have come to know Jesus. And uh, we made a short film about his life that other friends have shown as they preached in churches and people have come to know Jesus through it. Mm. And um, he speaks even though he's dead and his Mm. legacy lives on. And I think that's the message, you know, you, you, you can kill us, but the, the mm. message, the story mm. of Christianity mm. lives on and transforms. And at the end of the day, there's a lot of people living, but who aren't alive. And, right. and Marouane at least experienced true life yeah. and continues to experience true life. But you're there for the people who are alive, but they're living in Death's Valley at this point. And, and, and those are the people you're continuing to try to reach. And not simply to reach in a kind of, uh, we're going to help you, but actually to be part next to them part of that community not as some kind of white savior coming in to save them but 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 very much saying i i want i we, we're going to be 
brothers and sisters together on this journey. Yeah, absolutely. Come and join Covenant family. Come and do life with us. Uh, and as you come off drugs and as you leave gang membership behind, come and discover who God's really created you to be because guarantee it'll blow your mind. Thank you so much. Thank you for the challenge of what you've been doing with Sarah, Pete, out in South Africa. Thank you that you're, you've put it down in this book, um, No Neutral Ground, Finding Jesus in a Cape Town Ghetto. It's available from Hodder. And um, we just wish you God's blessings as you continue to find where Jesus is leading you next and encourage other people to step into their Manenberg, whatever it right. might be. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Profile with me, Justin Briley. My guest today was Pete Portal. Uh, you can find out more about uh, the ministry. Where should they go, Pete, if they want to look you up online, a website, that kind of thing? Um, Tree of Life. Uh, the name of our church is treeoflife.org.za. And if they want uh, more personal information and uh, to order the book, they can go to peteportal.com. Brilliant. peteportal.com. Good place to go for more. But uh, thanks for being my guest on the show today. And if you're listening and you'd like to find more interviews with all kinds of interesting people like Pete, why not check out the archive of shows from the podcast? You're looking for the profile wherever you get your podcast from. Give us a rating and a review as well. Always helps other people to discover the show. Uh, we'll be back again at the same time next week. And make sure to get hold of your copy of Premier Christianity magazine, our sister publication, which brings you the profile here on Premier Christian Radio every week for the moment. Thanks for being with me. We'll see you next time.